comes into your mind when I ask you to imagine what Jesus looked like as he walked the earth? What image of him do we tend to see portrayed in the stained glass windows of churches or in the illustrations of children's Bible storybooks? In many cases, it's a white-skinned, blue-eyed man who may even have long blonde hair, someone resembling a Californian surfer dude. This image bears little resemblance to the historical Jesus. It seems obvious to say it, but Jesus was Jewish. He was, to the very core, a Jew. Yet, besides a few basic facts about Judaism that pop up in Sunday sermons, many Christians have slowly divorced him from this rich and essential aspect of his identity. I'm Vicky Beeching, and you're listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people of all faiths and none who want to explore questions of spirituality and ethics. My guest today has dedicated her academic career to the task of reuniting Jesus with his true Jewishness. She is Amy Jill Levine, herself Jewish, but unusually also Professor of New Testament Studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Amy Jill, welcome. Nice to be with you. So you're Jewish by birth, you teach New Testament in the American Bible Belt. That certainly makes for a wonderfully unusual combination. What was it that drew you onto this very unique path? I should say I'm not only Jewish by birth, I'm also Jewish by contemporary affiliation. That has not gone away. When I was a child growing up in New England in Massachusetts, I was in a predominantly Roman Catholic, Portuguese Roman Catholic neighborhood, and I was interested in what my friends were doing on Sunday morning and in religious education class in the afternoon after school. My parents explained to me that uh, Christianity was very much like Judaism, that we worshiped the same God, the God who created heaven and earth, that we prayed a number of the same prayers, most notably the Psalms, that we took authority from the same set of scriptures, whether Genesis or Isaiah or Deuteronomy, and that Christians thought a Jewish man named Jesus was very important. So my initial sense of Christianity was it was sort of like the synagogue we did not go to. It was somehow in the family. And then one day when I was in second grade, I think I was seven years old, a little girl said to me on the school bus, you killed our Lord. And I remember saying with no small degree of indignation, no, I did not, because if you killed God, you would know. And she said, yes, you did. Our priest said so. When I got off the school bus, I was weeping. And my mother met me and asked me what was wrong. And I said, I killed God because I was convinced that I had. It took her a while to figure out what had happened, but when she finally got the story from me, she assured me that God was doing just fine, which was an enormous relief, and she made a few calls to the local church office, and the priest was reprimanded. Vatican II, part of the revision of Roman Catholic teaching, liturgy, even doctrine, had already begun, but the later document of Vatican II, a text called Nostra Aetate, Latin for In Our Time, had not yet been promulgated. And what Nostra Aetate said is that Jews should not be held responsible for all times and all places for killing Jesus. And this creates a sea change in Roman Catholic education. My problem was I heard this before the end of Vatican II. I could not figure out why this tradition that had so much in common with Judaism, not to mention beautiful Christmas carols and lovely Christmas trees and the Easter bunny, how could this tradition be saying horrible things about Jews? So I started asking questions. I was seven then. I'm now 57. So it's been a life's passion. 
the figure of Jesus has, has really captivated you. He's become such a focus within your academic career and your writings. Tell us a bit about what it is that makes Jesus himself so compelling to you. It's not only Jesus, it's the people who follow him, and it's how he's been understood over the centuries. In part, studying Jesus is getting my own history back for me. In my synagogue context, we're very good about doing Jewish history up through, oh, the time of the Maccabees. That's the Hanukkah story in the 160s BCE, 160 before the time of Jesus. And then suddenly we're over into rabbinic literature, into the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are past the first century. So they're, you know, early third century material. So if I want to know something about first century Judaism, the New Testament is one of my best sources. If I want to know about women in the Galilee in the first century, the New Testament is my best source. So studying Jesus helps me fill in the blanks for Jewish history. And studying Jesus, I find him to be a remarkable teacher. He inspires me. I learn from him. He makes me think about important things like how to talk to people who are of a different ethnic group or how one should treat the poor or what family values really are. So I think he poses really excellent questions, and I think particularly in his parables, he helps us see the world in a more challenging, more fulsome way. It seems probable that many people, especially if they have a Christian background, would be aware that Jesus was a Jew and that they would recognise that as a key part of his identity. Do you find that to be true, or would you say that his Jewishness has largely been forgotten even by Christians? I think it's there, but I don't think it has much context. So if I say, well, Jesus is a Jew, everybody says yes. But then I say, what exactly does that mean? And they're not quite sure. It'd be like saying to an American, so-and-so is from Great Britain. What stereotypes do we then put up? Or your listeners say, oh, she's an American. Ah, what do you think she believes? What tends to go missing is the particulars of what makes him Jewish and not Gentile or not Protestant or not Catholic. For example, Jesus in the New Testament spends an enormous amount of time arguing with fellow Jews. And for a number of my Christian students, they think that this is Jesus withdrawing from Judaism. What they don't realize is that argumentation in Judaism puts you right in the heart of Judaism rather than takes you out of it. A number of my Christian students think that Jesus dismisses Torah, dismisses the law, dismisses Moses and the scriptures given at Sinai. To the contrary, what Jesus does is debate with fellow Jews over how to follow those laws. And one does not debate something for which one has no concerned interest. Paint a quick portrait for us, actually, of, of Jesus the Jew. Tell us what he would have looked like, his, his appearance, his worldview, his lifestyle. What would Jesus the Jew look like? When we talk about appearance, um, and it's frequently said, as your introduction did, that, you know, he wasn't blonde and blue-eyed and he didn't look like a California surfer dude. I mean, the problem here is that there are California surfer dudes who were blonde and blue-eyed, but who happen to be fully Jewish as well, because Jews come in in all different, you know, hair colors and, and racial identifications and sizes and whatnot. What we need to recognize is that he's a Middle Eastern Jew, so he probably would have had dark hair and fairly swarthy skin. I think, actually, he was probably a tad chubby because he spends an enormous amount of time eating. <laughs> you know, one of the things he does is he gathers people at table. Um, 
And that's actually a, a Jewish model because one early dominant Jewish view of the Messianic age, heaven, the world to come, whatever we might call it, was heaven was a giant banquet where you reclined at a banquet with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus, in meeting people at table, is, is actually saying, you've got one foot in the kingdom of heaven already. My friends are then want to assure me that he walked a lot, so he probably was in good shape, but I still think he was chubby. <laughs> I like the idea of heaven as a banquet. That definitely appeals to me. I think a lot of people would find that portrait of a very Jewish Jesus difficult to somehow accept in contrast to the portrait of him painted by contemporary Christianity. Why do you think some of that makes people uncomfortable? Sometimes people are made uncomfortable because ignorance makes us uncomfortable. And if people are unfamiliar with first century Judaism, that creates some sort of ignorance. There's also a fairly common move to see Jesus as over against Judaism, as founding a new religion. For some people, Jesus has to be completely unique in everything. So I've had some students suggest that Jesus invented the idea of love of God and love of neighbor. And when I point out that love of God is Deuteronomy and love of neighbor is Leviticus, they're quite surprised. You know, and part of that may be the increasing lack of familiarity that Christians have with the Christian Old Testament, also known as the scriptures of Israel. How would you describe Jesus' worldview theologically? Jesus, like his fellow Jews, identifies God as Father. His praying, our Father, is, is a perfectly good Jewish prayer opening. The Hebrew would be Avinu. You still hear that in the synagogue today. Jesus insists that the law be kept. He's very concerned about honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy, and he does that by healing. There's no law saying you cannot heal on the Sabbath. There are other Jews who might say for a, a non-painful chronic condition, you might wait until the end of the Sabbath, and Jesus says no. But that's perfectly legitimate within an early Jewish worldview. Jesus attends synagogues and speaks in synagogues. We find him in the Temple of Jerusalem. So he's participating in Jewish worship, in Jewish liturgy. The stories that he tells are based substantially on Jewish models. The very famous parable of the prodigal son, which even biblically illiterate people have probably encountered, begins, there was a man who had two sons. And at this point, every Jew knows the plot line because in the scriptures of Israel, there are many men who have two sons, and the sons are usually rivals with each other, whether it's Cain and Abel or Isaac and Ishmael or Jacob and Esau. So the Jew already knows the plot line and then is already invested in the parable. And then the parable changes the plot line a little bit as parables, stories that are designed to provoke and to challenge, are wont to do. Let me come back to the uh, the hostilities that your childhood friend expressed on the school bus. Do you think there are still churches today that propagate the view that the Jews killed Jesus? And do you think churches go far enough in distancing themselves from that message? I hold a joint appointment in Cambridge, so I've worked with a number of people in the British context in England and Scotland, in South Africa and in Australia, and I found very, very little hostility across the board. And the hostility that I find is substantially based in ignorance rather than in pure form of anti-Semitism. I should also note that sometimes I hear ignorant comments made by Jews about Christianity. So there's a bit of housekeeping to do on both sides. Jews and Christians do not know each other well enough. We're frequently afraid to ask each other questions for fear of offending. And sometimes we put in incorrect and negative stereotypes when instead we should be doing the history and learning better about each other. 
And the New Testament could be seen to feed some of those prejudices. After all, it often describes the Jews in a negative light, as though Jesus wasn't one of them. Why do you think the Gospels put it that way? It's a very good question. And indeed, the New Testament can be read as anti-Jewish. It can also be read as not anti-Jewish. The best analogy here would be Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. You can read it negatively about Jews or you can read it sympathetically. But the Gospels are being written at a time when there are multiple calls on who is the correct heir of the scriptures of Israel, whether the Jewish community predominantly following the Pharisaic movement or whether the Christian community predominantly following Jesus. If one wants to make a case for one's own view, one typically will present a a fairly negative caricatured view of the opponent. And what we get in the New Testament is a caricature of early Judaism rather than an objective portrait. And when you talk to a Jewish audience and they find out that your focus is going to be on Jesus the Jew, what kind of reception does that tend to get? For the most part, really quite an interested one. Jews have increasingly had some interest in Jesus. There's a little cottage industry in the book business on, you know, Jesus is a Jew or Jesus the misunderstood Jew or Jesus in his Jewish context. It seems to me personally that if we Jews are happy to acknowledge as Jewish Sigmund Freud or um, the Marxists, both Karl and Groucho, um, <laughs> you know, or Disraeli, <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen, who I like very much, if, you know, if we can acknowledge others as Jews, then why not acknowledge Jesus, whose whose level of Jewish participation was certainly higher than at least uh, Karl Marx's? <laughs> Would you say that? The Jewish audience would tend uh, towards reluctance to accept him as Jewish, or is there a sense of pride for the positive aspects of his life and teaching? Um, I found very, very little reluctance to accept him as Jewish. The reluctance comes in terms of accepting him as more than an interesting Jewish teacher. For Christians, he needs to be more than that. So he needs to be both that interesting Jewish teacher, but in a Christian context, he also has to have that that connection to the divine, that special connection that Christians would refer to, say, as, as son of God or as part of the Trinity. So where Jews and Christians will disagree is, is on theology rather than on something like how to interpret the parables or how to understand his teachings regarding Jewish law. What, if anything, do you think a Jewish reader can gain from studying the New Testament? Besides becoming increasingly familiar with literature that underlies so much Western art, literature, music, if one doesn't know the New Testament, one becomes somewhat culturally illiterate. One can recover, as I've noted, parts of Jewish history, and I think one can also take inspiration from a number of his teachings. In the same way that we can take inspiration from Buddhist teachings or Hindu teachings, one doesn't have to be a Christian in order to appreciate Jesus of Nazareth. And if one understands him from a Jewish context, then I think the understanding of him becomes even more full, even richer. When you've chatted to Jewish audiences about him, you did refer to the fact that there were some common misinterpretations within Christianity about what Judaism says about Jesus. Could you tell us a few of those that have popped up in your sessions? The majority of incorrect views of early Judaism come from a Christian context rather than a Jewish one. So a number of my Christian friends think that first century Judaism was highly misogynist, that women were treated just as property and that they were, you know, oppressed and repressed and suppressed by Judaism. And Jesus comes along like some sort of feminist. 
Well, that turns out not to be the case. The New Testament actually tells us that first century Jewish women owned their own homes, had access to their own funds, had freedom of travel, served as patrons. A number of my Christian friends, just one more example, think that early Jews were completely xenophobic, that they hated all Gentiles. They thought that only Jews were important and only Jews were part of God's people. What we find is something that's quite the contrary. The temple in Jerusalem, of which the Western Wall still remains, the outer court was called the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles, non-Jews, were welcome to worship. And we know that synagogues in antiquity welcomed in non-Jewish worshipers, Gentile worshipers. They were known as God-fearers. So Jesus' open attitude toward Gentiles is part of a broader Jewish view. If we can correct these negative stereotypes about early Judaism, then we can understand Jesus better and we will not be either introducing or reinforcing negative views of early Judaism. Do you think those negative stereotypes and the tensions between the two faiths has ever meant that as you've presented Jesus the Jew, your Jewish audiences have felt uncomfortable as though perhaps you're trying to get them to convert to Christianity? <laughs> as far as I'm aware, that's never been the case. I'm actually a member of an Orthodox synagogue, although the level of my orthodoxy is not terribly high. Uh, but I, I do very much love my community. And I think for Jewish audiences, since my Jewish audiences know that I am not a Christian, I am not a Messianic Jew, I do not worship Jesus as Lord and Savior, that they can have a feeling of trust Recently, along with a colleague named Mark Brettler, who teaches at Brandeis University in Massachusetts, I edited something called the Jewish Annotated New Testament. And we had 51 Jewish contributors providing notes on all the books in the New Testament, as well as back essays on who were the Pharisees and what was the temple and what were Jewish women's lives like and so on. You can have over 50 Jews who are not worshipers of Jesus talking about the New Testament, and thus Jews should be able to read this text and appreciate it and understand it without fear of being proselytized. How far do you think Jews who don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah can go in acknowledging him as a person of religious authority? I'm not asking that he be acknowledged as a person of religious authority because he would have no authoritative role in a Jewish context, but that doesn't stop him from being inspirational. In the same way, I would look at the writings of Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi as being inspirational, but they would not be authoritative within a Jewish context. So the issue of authority is a different question than the issue of personal inspiration. Have you ever found yourself personally in that position with a lifetime of growing up among Christian friends and then studying the New Testament in such depth? Have there ever been moments in your life where you have wondered about embracing Christianity? Um, every once in a while, it does occur to me that it might be a little bit easier to be Christian. But my heart is completely filled with my own Judaism, so there's no hole there for Jesus to come to fill. Religious belief, as I understand it, is not based on logic, and it's not based on study. It's, it's more like... It's more like love than it's like Sudoku. It's not a logic <laughs> puzzle. You know, if it hits you, that's terrific. You've got it. That's like love. And if you love something else, well, that's the way it goes. I love my Judaism, so I've never felt the call to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'm fascinated by him, but I don't worship him. What do you think is the most persuasive argument for not seeing him as the Messiah? I'd not be inclined to make one because I have no wish to persuade Christians that he's not. 
within a Jewish context in first century Judaism at the time of Jesus, there were multiple views of what the Messiah might do and who he was and what the signs of the Messiah were. But the dominant Jewish view was that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would come with the Messianic age. It was a package. You could not have one without the other. And the Messianic age meant an end to war, an end to disease and death and poverty. It meant a general resurrection of the dead when everyone came back. It meant that children would no longer cry at night because they were afraid. And I read the newspaper today, and clearly the Messianic age has not come. So in a Jewish context, we still wait for the Messiah because we still wait for the Messianic age. But for Christians, there's a different definition of what a Messiah is and what a Messiah does. As a final thought, if you had a chance to meet Jesus today face to face, what would you most like to ask him or discuss with him? Uh, Well, (laughs) um, I'd I'd certainly want more than one question. I think my first question (laughs) might be, do you, you know, do you speak Greek and and how badly did the New Testament mangle your teachings? Because Jesus spoke Aramaic, the New Testament's written in Greek, and most of your listeners are probably reading it in English. I want to know if he was celibate, because I think, in fact, he was. I want to know if he said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's only in Matthew and Mark and not in Luke and John. I want to know how he imagined his own relationship to God and whether he thought of himself as part of God, whether he wanted people to pray to him or whether he really wanted people to pray our father and not to him directly. And I have multiple other questions. And I also really want to have a conversation with his mother. Amy Jill Levine, Professor of New Testament Studies at Vanderbilt University, thanks so much for joining us here today. A pleasure to be with you. I'm Vicky Beeching, and you've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people of all faiths and none with an interest in discussing questions of spirituality. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.